Hello, church. Good morning. Okay, folks. So, we're looking at Colossians. I'm doing the final two chapters. But just to set the scenery, give us a little bit of a reminder of where we're at, going to give you a 30-second summary of the journey so far. So, chapter one, Paul is addressing some false teaching that's taken, home, taken hold in the church. Don't really know the details. Scholars have argued about it for centuries, but it's likely a mix of Jewish belief, a type of Greek philosophy called Stoicism, a little bit of Gnostic escapism there, whereby people seek privileged access to a spiritual realm that will take them out of their lives. It's a bit like today, um, trying to have a mix of legalism, a bunch of rules that you follow, maybe following a social media influencer, a bit of vague belief in God, that kind of thing. So we're really separated by 2,000 years and nothing at all. We're talking about regular people using a pick-and-mix approach just to try and find their way in life. And Paul says a thundering no to that because all you need is Jesus. And then in chapter 2, this was Graham's talk last week, he unpacked this glorious truth about Jesus. The Colossians, like all Christians, had been dead in their sins, but Christ made them alive with him. And Graham focused on Paul's encouragement to continue to live in Christ with the key practice of meditating on Scripture, ruminating on Scripture, marinating in Scripture. And so this morning, I'm going to focus on chapter 3 and the first six verses of chapter 4, the reason being that after that, it's a series of greetings and hellos and that kind of thing. Um, but there is one little bit in there that's important because it gives a nod to the importance of the ministry of women. Woohoo! Um, okay, so the backdrop to the verses that we're going to be looking at, Jesus has, transfer, has transferred believers from the realm of sin and death into the kingdom of God. And as is so often the way with Paul, he starts with laying out the theological vision, which in this case is you've died with Christ, you've been raised with him, you're a new creation. And then he moves to the ethical demand of believing that. You've put certain behaviors to death and you nurture Christ-like behaviors. So that's the overarching structure of what we're going to look at. If I was going to summarize one idea for the whole thing, it would be this, be heavenly minded. So peg that in your heads, be heavenly minded. We're going to explore a little bit about what that looks like, what it means. So let's take a look at Colossians verses 1 to 3. Read it up on the screens with me. So you've been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. What does that mean? Well, Paul starts off by reminding Christians that they've been buried with Christ in baptism and raised to a new kind of life. And he communicates this truth in a different way in verse three, where he's riffing on a Greek idea that people were hidden in the earth after they died. And that makes sense, you're surrounded by earth. Paul says, 
Christians have died a spiritual death in baptism and now they're hidden in Christ. It's a beautiful way of saying that believers are now wrapped up in, completely surrounded by Christ. And as a result of this, they should now seek the things that are above. He doesn't really go into detail at this point about what that means, but it's fair to assume from the context that he's talking about the kingdom of God. I just want to take us a little bit into this word seek. It's obviously in the present tense for us in English, but in the Greek you get a little bit more. It indicates continuing action. It's kind of like what Graham was saying last week. Continually, diligently seek God's kingdom from day to day. It's not a one-off. It's not something that we can be nah about. You're throwing yourself into it. And so Paul is saying in this little word, seek, keep on keeping on. Seek God's kingdom every day. I'm reminded of... um, Isaiah's little phrase, set your face like flint. You know the one I mean? Set your face like flint in pursuing God. It's about relentless determination for seeking God's kingdom. And then Paul teaches the importance of setting your mind on things that are above. Set your mind. He's now talking about understanding, attitudes, mindset. What we believe as Christians, matters. It has eternal significance. Because Christians aren't distinguished from anyone else by our ethnicity, or our background, or our geographical area. We're marked out by what we believe. So rightly or wrongly, what we believe shapes our faith. And again, as Graham said last week, our faith is vital for salvation. And of course, what we believe also shapes our behavior. That's just how we're built. So the intellectual side of faith, the understanding side of faith, is hugely important. That's why Paul told the Christians in Rome to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Romans 12, verse 12. And in understanding that, we also need to be careful how we understand not on things that are on earth. Paul is saying... Don't live by worldly values that are opposed to God and his ways. Don't follow the culture around you. Live by God's standards, not anyone else's. He's not saying that physical life is bad or less worthy than spiritual life. That interpretation cuts against the whole character and trajectory of the New Testament. He is saying, set your minds on things that are above not on things that are on the earth. Focus on God within your everyday life. And that's important because sometimes as Christians we can be tempted to just focus on the heavenly-minded bit. Johnny Cash has a song. Um, He's actually nicked this phrase from somebody else, but I like the song, so I've put it up there. You're shining your light, and shine it you should, but you're so heavenly-minded, you're no earthly good. And there is a sense where Christians can be tempted to be so spiritual that they're no good anymore. And that was actually the problem with the Thessalonians, just to go off on a bit of a tangent. They were so busy ecstatically waiting for the second coming of Jesus that they thought they could stop working. 
They just stuck down tools. And Paul's response was, if you don't work, you don't eat. So live a normal life, serve people in Jesus' name. Don't just sit around being heavenly minded. So Cash has got that right. But Cash also missed the mark a bit. Because if someone is really beautifully heavenly minded, if they're relentlessly seeking God's kingdom, if they're setting their mind on the kind of beliefs that create faith and lead to salvation, well then they end up being driven into the world to change the world. And we could look at all kinds of examples here, but here's one, the late great Martin Luther King. Baptist minister, key figure, in the 1960s civil rights movement in the States. And in saying, we have before us the glorious opportunity to inject a new dimension of love into the veins of civilization, he was utterly motivated by his Christian faith. If you look at some of his speeches, they are shot through with the Bible, particularly his famous I Have a Dream speech. A lot of that was actually improvised And the scripture is just flowing out of him because it's part of his breathing. It shaped his decision to use non-violent resistance as a way to fight against racism. So Cash, partway right, we must be of earthly use as well as heavenly minded. Martin Luther King, totally right. We must be so heavenly minded that we can be of earthly use. Now, if you're sitting there thinking, oh, I don't know, I think I'd rather just come to church once a Sunday and have a cup of tea, and you're a bit worried that you couldn't possibly be the next Martin Luther King, well, we're not all called to be the next Martin Luther King, but we are called to be heavenly-minded and put that into practice, whatever that looks like. And the good news is that the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead lives in us. With God, all things are possible. If we lean into the life of the Spirit, God himself helps us to seek his kingdom diligently. God himself helps us to fix our minds on the things above. God himself helps us to fulfill our purposes in his world. Isn't that amazing? Don't try and do it in your own strength. You'll collapse. You might even lose your faith. Do it in God's strength. Wow. If it also helps, helps me anyway, to remember that being consumed with what God wants, leads to peace for us. A couple of quick verses. Philippians. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things, and the God of peace will be with you. The Isaiah verse was the one that I picked last week when Graham said, pick one to ruminate on in the week. You will keep him or her in perfect peace, him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. It can also be translated whose mind is stayed on you. I love that. But to get hold of the scope of what peace means when we're being heavenly minded, I want to go into the different meanings of that Hebrew word shalom. A couple of years ago there was a, a prayer room in Halston Primary School and there was a prayer wall about Shalom. It's always stuck with me, so thank you Brian and Tracy for that. Um, So many different meanings of the word peace. Wholeness, wellness, you can read them right there. 
It's not just about peace for ourselves, although that's lovely. It's bigger than that. It's about the health and well-being of our communities, our nation, the natural world that we live in and God has tasked us to take care of. So when we're being heavenly-minded, we're part of restoring God's peace to the whole of creation. It's an absolutely vast vision. You want in? Yeah? Great. Here are some steps from St. Paul. One, kill your earthly nature. He doesn't pull any punches. Kill your earthly nature. Chapter 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. What is the earthly nature? It's the rebellious nature that Christians believe all humans are born with. And in this state, people are enslaved to sin. Romans 6 and 7. And it's impossible to please God. Romans 8. But receiving salvation through Jesus breaks the power that sin once had over us. It gives us a new nature. And we become God's sons and daughters. Ephesians 1.5. But just as children sometimes disobey their parents as they grow up, we sometimes still disobey God our Father. We make poor choices, often repeatedly. We rebel, we doubt, we refuse. There are so many Christians like I myself, this is us, this is a spiritual picture of what we're like. You know, like Jonah, you know, God said, go to Nineveh, it's over there, and Jonah said, yes, that's very interesting, I think I'm gonna go that way. You know, it's, we, that's the earthly nature bubbling up, just refusing to do what God asks. We're not stuck in the realm of darkness anymore. We've been redeemed from that. We are a new creation. We do live in God's kingdom, but we still commit sins as part of growing up in our relationship with God. And so Paul says, if you've accepted Jesus as your saver, then anything that goes against God in your life must be eliminated. Not excused, not made comfortable with, eliminated, kill it. And he lists a whole bunch of stuff. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language, lying. And no, if something's not listed, it doesn't make it okay. I've checked. Now, if you didn't come out very well from that, same here. But please hear this. Paul isn't saying this in order to shame anyone. That's not in God's nature. That's not what he's about. He writes to the church in Rome, there is no condemnation for anyone who is in Christ Jesus. So don't feel condemned. But think about the severity of this teaching, kill it, in terms of uh, a mum grabbing their kid to stop them running out into traffic. Um, when I picked this, I thought I picked it for two reasons. First of all, that kid is looking resolutely determined. <laughs> you know, she's absolutely going for it. And not only is the mum with a dog, she's got heels on. So I, I feel really sorry for her. But, you know, God is he's saying something so severe because he knows the consequences if we don't stop. So God knows that a sin is a threat to us. Kill it. And if you're anything like me, you suffer from zombie sins. Um, this is actually the least horrendous picture I could find of zombies. And, 
And actually, now that I reflect on it, I think they don't really need help, they just need a physio, because that guy's really wonky. But it's, it's, it's the habits that you thought you killed, and then they come back to life, and you have to kill them all over again. And then they come back to life, and you have to kill them all over again. Traditionally, they're called besetting sins. But it means that your whole life can feel like constant spiritual whack-a-mole. You know, you kind of hit that thing and then something else pops up and you have to kill that thing and, and it just goes on and it, you know, your life can end up feeling pretty dispiriting. But take heart, because in that process we are being changed from glory to glory. 2 Corinthians 13. We're on a journey of a lifetime. Be patient. If we keep confessing, repenting, receiving forgiveness, then over time we will become more and more like Jesus. I really like how Joyce Mayer puts it. I may not be where I want to be, but thank God I'm not where I used to be. So true. We may lose the occasional battle, but we're not lost. We're found. Hallelujah. God's mercies are new every morning. Lamentations 3. And Jesus himself prays for us. 1 John and basically all of Hebrews. If you're struggling with putting your earthly nature to death, God's mercies are new every morning. Jesus himself prays for you. So, kill your old self. Second, put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Chapter 3, verse 10. The new self is the identity that we now have in Christ. We're forgiven, we're reconciled, we're children of God. All the good stuff. We're told to put on the new self. Paul also says, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Now, I used to worry that this image of putting on and clothing meant that I should pretend to put on characteristics that I don't possess. The clothing wasn't me. It just looked nice for the world, but actually, I was still not in a good place. A bit like the kid on the left-hand side, you know. He's dressed up as a butterfly, but there's no way that he believes he's actually a butterfly. You know, let's face it. But there's another way of looking about, thinking about it. The clothes say something about the identity that you already have. When Paul says, put on the new self, clothe yourself in compassion, it's more about the queen puts on her posh clothes and her tiara when she's opening state parliament. It says, this is who I am. When the judge is in the courtroom passing sentence, they put on all the garb because that's who she is in that moment. The clothes say something about who you are. So when Paul says, clothe yourselves in compassion, he's saying, remember who you are. You are a new creation in Christ. These are the actions that fit with you being a new creation. So, two main teachings for us as individuals. Kill off your old self, put on the new. Moving outwards, how can we be heavenly minded in the church community and then our wider community? Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. That's chapter three, verse 15. We're called as heavenly minded people to commit to building up peace within our church and across different church communities. This can be painful, and if it's real, it probably will be painful. It's going to be hard graft. 
because real reconciliation involves working through difficult stuff. But when Christians invest in peaceful relationships between themselves, it's really important because you're manifesting the kingdom of God to the world. You're showing the world what a restored humanity looks like. So peace in your church. And then lastly, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. Chapter four, verses five to six. Do you know that non-Christians look at us? They want to see if we're different. Very often it's a precursor to somebody coming to faith. They can see Christians, they know they're Christians and they can see something different. But are we gracious or are we judgmental and whiny? Are we trustworthy or gossips? Do we act fairly towards other people at work or do we surrender our integrity? How are we doing with being heavenly minded when we're around non-Christians? It's very easy here. What are we like out in the world? So four ways then that we can express and develop being heavenly minded. They're just practical little things that have come straight from Paul himself. So just take a look at that list and take a second or so to pick one thing that the Spirit is saying, focus on this thing this week. Maybe there's one zombie sin that you need to kill again. Maybe you need the encouragement of hearing that God wants to help you with that. Maybe you struggle to see yourself as having a new nature, being a new creation. To see yourself as God sees you. Beautiful. Maybe you need to make peace with somebody somehow. Maybe you want to think in a new way about how you are at work. Just pick something. I'll give you a couple of seconds. So just to sum up, be heavenly minded. Because we're seeking God's kingdom, we're setting our minds on things that are above, and we're living it out in our daily lives, not just for our own benefit, but in order to establish God's kingdom on earth, to make his name great. Amen.